from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us on this Friday, the 13th. Watch out, folks. Coming up on today's show, NATO meetings in Brussels completed. They were tense at times, partly when President Trump had been meeting with leaders from other countries. We'll review the meetings and look at what has been discussed and or agreed upon. Then in about 30 minutes, the world has had their attention fixed on Thailand the last couple of weeks with that youth soccer team trapped in a cave. And now that they are out and safe, we take a look at the process of the rescue and the leadership needed by many people and organizations to get them and the coach out safely. Then in hour number two, a new report from here at the University of Pennsylvania delves deeper into the problems of higher education and not just the issues around cost. But how many states are not proactive to the need of prospective students? We'll discuss that with the researchers involved coming up at 11 Eastern time. And then in our final 30, doesn't it feel like every time you go to buy something or you invest in something, there are fees attached to it? It might be concert tickets. It might be your investment accounts. Fees have become an additional cost for all of us. But a new book suggests that those fees may be part of the reason why the middle class is struggling. We'll talk to the author of that book coming up at 11.30 Eastern Time. That book is titled The Land of the Fee. All of that over the next two hours. Your comments are welcome throughout. The way for you to join in is either by phone at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. First, though, here's what you need to know from today's business headlines. And the Justice Department has now appealed the approval of the AT&T-Time Warner merger. It says that the deal would hurt competition and raise consumer prices. Same concerns that it had before the judge's ruling. AT&T says they were surprised by the appeal of the $85.4 billion deal. J.P. Morgan posted a record second quarter profit, thanks in part to heavier trading. The bank had a profit of $8.32 billion with earnings per share of $2.29. J.P. Morgan's revenue from the markets rose by 13% to $5.4 billion. Meanwhile, other banks reporting earnings today. Wells Fargo missed on both earnings and revenue. Citigroup missed on revenue but beat on earnings at $1.63 a share. A Missouri court has ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay a record $4.69 billion award to 22 women who dealt with medical issues due to asbestos-contaminated talcum powder. This is the largest verdict that J&J has dealt with over the problem. And McDonald's is at the heart of investigations in Illinois and Iowa regarding foodborne illness. More than 100 cases have been reported, which appear to be linked to salads being served at the fast food restaurant chain. The NATO summit in Brussels drew more attention than usual due to the recent comments by President Trump about the organization. He was highly critical ahead of the meetings, claiming that it was outdated and demanded countries 
need to contribute more financially towards security. Then he ended the summit with an about-face claiming success in a news conference yesterday. After Brussels, President Trump has moved on to the United Kingdom to meet with British Prime Minister Theresa May, but an interview he gave to the British paper The Sun had many feeling that maybe he had put Mrs. May under the bus. Those two had had a joint press conference earlier today and disputed some of those claims, mentioned some. Joining us to discuss all of this in studio, Daniel Kellman, political science professor and chair of European Union politics at Rutgers University. On the phone with us, Garrett Martin, who's a professional lecturer at the American University School of International Service. And joining us from South Bend, Indiana, Michael Desch, who's a professor and director of the International Security Center at the University of Notre Dame. Dan, as always, great having you stop by. Thank you for coming in. Great to see you, Dan. Michael, great to have you with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Garrett, great to have you on the phone with us. Likewise, my pleasure. So I guess let's start with with the NATO meetings. And obviously there was a lot of back and forth. A lot of the conversation dealt with the security aspects and the the money that uh, countries may or may not be contributing to this. When you look back, Dan, at, at these meetings, what are the most poignant moments that you take from them? Well, it started in chaos, really, uh, right on his arrival uh, with uh, Trump uh, uh, attacking Merkel and saying that Germany was controlled by Russia and these things. And then it just went on from there to be deeper and deeper chaos, really throwing the meeting uh, uh, off its agenda and you know issuing these threats at one point saying i mean really ridiculous threats so they have this two percent spending target supposed to be hit by 2024 and at one point he said that if they didn't hit two percent all the allies by january you know just some months from now yeah. right then the u.s would quote go it alone uh on on, yeah. on security and i mean of course that's ridiculous no country i mean in some cases that'd be like doubling your defense budget in six months so yeah. you know th- this is just not serious and i think the bigger picture we can talk about all the moments But the bigger picture is that we've never seen anything like this with a a U.S. president taking our central alliance, the things we've sort of taken for granted as the pillars of U.S. foreign policy for decades, and really throwing them into question. Garrett? No, I fully agree with a lot of what Dan says. It is it was quite a remarkable spectacle. I mean, it wasn't quite as disastrous as the G7 where Trump suddenly decided to sort of back away from signing a joint statement. However, it is very worrying in terms of the behavior. It really felt like we were sort of witnessing a bad reality TV show. There was a lot of domestic grandstanding, a lot of absurd claims. Now, I suppose for me, the one silver lining of this is that although there was a lot of disruption, although there was a lot of um, a spectacle of disunity and discord before the important summit in Helsinki with, with Putin, It is helpful that some of the day-to-day long-term work of the alliance, which NATO has been following since 2014, to improve its military readiness, to improve its its capabilities of deterring Russia, at least that work was not sort of wrecked by the sort of show of Donald Trump in Brussels. Michael, your thoughts? Well, you know, you can't dispute the fact that uh, the president is a bull in a china shop. And uh, also, you know, it would be better, I think, if he comported himself in a somewhat more diplomatic fashion in his dealing with our allies. On the other hand, he raised some important issues. The burden sharing issue is not new. We've been pushing the allies since the 1960s to uh, meet 
uh, targets uh, uh, for defense spending that they regularly uh, have not met. And, you know, this idea that uh, after the 2014 Wales summit, uh, the allies are going to meet the 2 percent of GDP defense spending within 10 years is sort of, you know, I'm from Missouri. Show me that they're actually there by (laughs) 2014. I would, though, you know, I think the president framing it in an equity uh, way is the wrong way to think about it. You know, during the Cold War, we complained about the allies under providing for their own security, but it was in our interest uh, to pay the freight anyhow. The key question we want to ask going forward is, 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 is it still in our interest uh, to uh, carry the lion's share of the defense burden for NATO. And secondly, if the allies are as concerned about the Russian military threat as some people say publicly, then why are the vast majority of the NATO members not meeting these targets right now? Why is Germany uh, basically demilitarizing itself? And I think the answer is, is that they're less spun up about the Russian threat than a lot of the breathless rhetoric indicates. But there is a question, I think, Dan, that that at, at this time, with the concerns around terrorism, but also the concerns of Russia, that spending on defense needs to be there. Right? You need to be prepared for it because we see a lot of, uh, from the technology side, a, a lot of concern over uh, Internet security. And that's a part, I think, now of defense spending it's not necessarily the traditional defense spending, but it, I think it's a part of it that that may need to be considered moving forward. Do you agree? Well, I do agree, and uh, I think uh, you'd struggle to find any of the defenders of the transatlantic alliance you know, who uh, don't agree that our allies should be um, spending more on defense. I mean, you some people in Europe, you know, on the left, more pacifist, you know, against yeah. upping defense spending, or those worried about you know fiscal constraints. But generally, I think there's a broad consensus, and spending has been going up. Um, true, some countries would really struggle to meet the two percent by 2024. Right, exactly. yeah. But if you look in the past few years uh, across the board in NATO, spending has been increasing and is continuing to increase. And I don't think there's any disagreement there. Or and past presidents have also made, as the other speaker mentioned, have you know made this same point and pressed our allies to spend more. Uh, that's not the issue. It, it's the approach and the disdain yeah. for the alliance that was showed by the president that is bothering a lot of people. And, and seemingly, Garrett, one of the uh, the diplomatic officials there made a comment to to one of the American uh, papers, basically saying that at these meetings you need predictability. And that person also said that isn't the case right now, which basically I think plays off of what what uh, what Dan said is that it, it, when you go to these meetings, I guess there's an approach, there's an expectation of how things are going to be laid out. I think you're, you're absolutely correct, and um, because you know you have to think about these meetings are, are well prepared in advance, they're well rehearsed. That's the sort of normal expectation. And of course, Trump is essentially the wild card here. You just never quite know how he's going to behave what he's going to come up with, you know, how he's going to disrupt the normal sort of agenda. And, you know, you, could, you couldn't assume that sometimes that might be helpful to sort of shake an alliance that might be complacent. But if that becomes the de facto attitude, that's highly problematic. I want to come back to the point about the 2%, because I've written a piece last year with a colleague, Balash Martinfi, about how there's a real fetishism and obsession with the 2%. Right. And to be very fair, the 2% is a terrible, it's a very unhelpful metric. 
uh, it only measures input. It says nothing about output. It says nothing about how you spend your money. And it says nothing about if you're spending money help in a helpful manner in order to serve the core tasks of the alliance. You know, the problem with Europe, and I, I agree that there needs to be more defense spending, but it also needs to be better spending currently. Right. There's an incredible amount of duplication of overlap. Europe is not getting enough bang for its buck, so that should be the main focus. And finally, also, when you're comparing the United States to its European partners, you're not comparing apples to apples. The United States is a global military power with global military responsibilities. A lot of its spending has nothing to do with Europe. So I think that needs to be kept in mind when we're comparing defense spending levels. Well, then who, who is overall responsible for that spending, as you allude to, and who would be basically responsible for making sure that the spending is done in a better fashion, Garrett? Well, I think that needs to be done at, at different levels. I think they need to, they're also planning pro, um, a planning process in NATO to make sure as much as possible that, you know, they are, NATO has its own internal targets. So it's not only about spending 2%. There's also uh, another condition, w- and which I think about half of the members are now meeting this, is at least 20% of your spending should be for research and development. Because, I, you know, a lot of scholars often use the example that you could compare Greece and Denmark, Greece is meeting the 2%, but most of its spending is on personnel and on sort of pensions. On the other hand, Denmark does not spend 2%, but it is a key player in terms of expeditionary sort of um, uh, role for the alliance. It's been highly involved in out-of-area missions. So I think that is, in my view, a lot closer to the core task of the alliance than what Greece is currently doing. Michael, your thoughts? Well, I think Garrett uh, highlights an excellent point, but I think in thinking about uh, how uh, military spending is being used within the alliance, it's actually uh, a worse story uh, for some of the key players. And the Germans, who were the the pillar of NATO uh, during the Cold War in terms of providing the lion's share of ground combat power, uh, are actually uh, getting a lot less out of what they're spending uh, than the you know the monetary targets uh, would indicate, and again it goes to the question: uh, How really do the uh, Europeans view the security threat that they face? And I think it's highly variegated. The uh, Baltic states, uh, you know, who are uh, you know up close and personal with the bear, I think are uh, quite concerned. Uh, I don't believe that the Germans regard uh, Russia as this uh, second coming of the uh, Soviet Union uh, that, you know, a lot of the sort of public commentary uh, seems to suggest. And the contretemp about the uh, German uh, uh, dependence, or not dependence, but purchase of uh, Russian fossil fuels and especially gas, I think illustrates this. I think the Germans don't like what the Putin government is doing, especially in Ukraine. But on the other hand, I think they're happy to uh, buy uh, gas and fossil fuels. Doesn't make them dependent on the Russians, but, you know, they have a uh, it's convenient for them to do so. And I think in a way that's prob- that view uh, of Putin's Russia is probably a more realistic assessment 
uh, of what the Europeans see. I don't think most of them think that Putin aims to uh, pull a Crimea and the Baltic states. Uh, I think the threat is real, but it's different and probably for most of the Europeans less catastrophic than that. But the the comment, Dan, itself that President Trump made about Germany being – uh, owned or reliant on, on Russia because of uh, of the fossil fuels that that they buy from the country. Again, it kind of goes back to what's been said earlier: is that you're talking about a partner, you're talking about a country that you do business with, that that you support, and they support you. To make the comment in public it, it is realistically, it's not how you need to do things. Well, yeah, I think. Um... You don't have to be a Freudian psychologist to see some projection there, right, with yeah. all the Russia investigation going on and the questions about um, uh, you know, Trump's own inclinations toward Putin that he then turns around and says the German government is controlled by Putin. And by the way, he just made up numbers. He, he uh, and, and that's not to say that uh, uh, there aren't a lot of questions about this Nord Stream pipeline plan and uh, myself included, a lot of people um, not too happy with aspects of it. That being said, he came up with these numbers like that they're 70 percent dependent for their energy supply on Russia, which uh, is uh, completely incorrect. I think it's more like nine. So uh, uh, anyway, uh, yeah, it was really um, striking just to see him lash out an ally in that way. 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Joined here in studio by Dan Kellerman of Rutgers University. On the phone, Garrett Martin of American University. And uh, from South Bend, Indiana, Michael Desch of the University of Notre Dame. Now, now Garrett, in terms of these meetings, uh, we did see the president sit down with President Macron of France and it appears that in terms of the relationships that President Trump has, positive or negative, with European leaders, it seems like that the one that he values maybe the most is the one with President Macron. Yes. I mean, if you're looking at his sort of body language and his interaction with some of the key European leaders, and if you're looking at sort of the big three, France, and Germany, and the United Kingdom, it definitely seems like he has better chemistry with Emmanuel Macron as opposed to Angela Merkel, and as we're seeing right now uh, with Theresa May. But I would certainly add a caveat. It's one thing to say that he has a good relationship with Macron, and in some respects they have some similarities and backgrounds, all these outsiders coming from the, sort of the business world. But it doesn't mean that Macron has been any more successful than his European counterparts in extracting concessions from Donald Trump. I mean, Macron came with great pomp and circumstance uh, for the state visit in late April, presumably and mostly to try and convince Trump not to withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal and not to impose tariffs on steel and aluminium, aluminium sorry, uh, for the European Union. He failed on both accounts. So I think you can have good relations. That doesn't mean that you're able to really change Trump's mind. Michael, your thoughts? Well, uh, I think, you know, to the extent that there is a coherent worldview or ideology behind what President Trump is trying to do, you know, maybe the closest European analog might be, uh, you know, a Gaullist approach, uh, hearkening back to the uh, French president, uh, Charles de Gaulle. Uh, But I do think uh, that it's important to get beyond the personalities. And it's but, you know, admittedly, it's hard to do that uh, in the case of uh, President Trump. 
and sort of focus on the fundamental geopolitical realities. Um, at the beginning of the show, you had talked about uh, NATO being uh, a pillar uh, of U.S. security. And I think it's uh, Western Europe uh, is still very important. But, you know, even under the previous administration, uh, we began a pivot to Asia. And I think most people would uh, admit that to the extent that the United States is going to have a geopolitical center of gravity in the 21st century, it's not going to be in Europe. It's going to be uh, in the uh, Western Pacific. Likewise, the United States is uh, still deeply engaged in another part of the world, uh, the Middle East. Uh, And so uh, it was natural, I think, with the end of the Cold War um, that America's strong Atlanticist focus uh, would shift a bit and would become diluted. And I think in a sense, NATO has been out of sync with that, out of sync in two senses. One is that, uh, you know, despite the end of the Cold War, it expanded. um, And I think its expansion has caused uh, a number of uh, challenges and problems uh, that we don't talk uh, enough about. Um, And secondly, uh, the United States uh, is shifting its attention to uh, other parts of the world. Uh, And so, in a sense, NATO is going to be one of a number uh, of commitments that the United States is going to have to juggle and balance. And I think that would be true whether it was Donald Trump uh, or whether it was Barack Obama. How how significant in your mind is is NATO now in comparison to uh, the days of the Cold War? Michael? I think, ironically, uh, it's both very significant in the sense that, you know, the NATO summit uh, has attracted a great deal of interest on both sides of the Atlantic, but also in terms of, you know, the boots on the ground, uh, the uh, place within larger American grand strategy, it's really fallen uh, you know, to uh, third place uh, at best. And so what's going on, I think, is uh, a sort of struggle uh, to bring into sync the reality of where Europe is in American foreign policy uh, with uh, our, you know, historical memory of a time in which the Atlantic Reli- uh, Alliance really was the pillar uh, of America's global strategy. It just isn't anymore. Dan? Well, I'd agree that uh, there's, and that we already saw in the last administration, if you remember in the Obama administration, there was talk of the pivot to Asia, yeah. right? And uh, the fact that Europe might not be so central in our uh, sort of global foreign policy. But uh, I think what we're seeing here is something fundamentally different. Really, what I think we're seeing here with President Trump, and this is you know, primarily ideologically driven or perhaps because of um, you know, his affinity to Putin, et cetera. But what we're seeing here is Trump is really trying to smash uh, the post-war liberal international order that the U.S. Uh, led the way in setting up and, and with it in uh, key institutions of the Western alliance. Because it's not just NATO. I mean, it's also the EU. Think about – you were talking about his rapport with Macron, remember? Yeah, yeah. And remember those reports came out when he met with Macron a couple months ago. He was trying to convince him to leave the EU. Sure, right? yeah, yeah. You know, He's attacking the EU on trade, right? He uh, is questioning U.S. membership in the World Trade Organization. You know, he's raising doubts about our commitments to NATO. He's talking about uh, you know, pol- uh, d- um, 
rescinding NAFTA, et cetera. So it's part of a bigger picture where all these institutions of you know, free trade and the, the core institutions of the transatlantic partnership, both in security and trade and sort of political integration, which again, presidents of both parties for the whole post-war era have supported these kind of institutions. We're seeing for the first time a president who sort of wants to tear those up and go to a world of uh, sort of America-first bilateralism where, yes, we pursue our interests, but not through international institutions or broad partnerships, but just in sort of one-on-one negotiations, you know, uh, between himself and other leaders who he... You know, finds of interest to deal with. Which, Garrett, I, I think is is an interesting point to touch on here for a second, because as, as President Trump was going through uh, the process, uh, the election run-up, uh, everybody knew that was kind of what he viewed. He wanted to do bilateral trade deals. But I think a lot of people may, or may be caught off guard by this level of bilateralism that he potentially wants to, to bring to the U.S., but also wants to bring to other corners of the world. No, I think I, I do agree. I, in a sense, it's sort of surprising the extent to which he has remained committed to certain key tenets, and certainly his aversion to um, multilateral organizations, his far greater preference to deal on a bilateral level is definitely playing out now in his administration. I have been, like you know, your, um, the other panelists and guests, surprised by the virulence of his attacks against uh, NATO and his virulence of his attacks against the post-war international order. There's a, a strange sort of schizophrenia in a sense, where on the one hand there's a message, a part of Trump's message, which is sort of very virulently nationalist, American exception, exceptionalism, but at the same time an aversion to paying some of the costs of being sort of the global power on the world stage. So it's interest. It's a very interesting sort of mix between those two discourses that we're seeing in sort of the Trumpian foreign policy. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter at Biz Radio One Eleven B I Z Radio One Eleven, or you can use my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney Twenty One. Now, the next part to this, which Dan and I were talking about as we came in, was this uh, two-day conver- uh, meeting with Theresa May, and obviously there was a report in the Sun that that President Trump made some comments about the Brexit. Uh, they had a press briefing earlier today where seemingly they were, you know, friends. They were very cordial to one another. Dan, uh, put these last two days into perspective, if you can, a little bit. Well, my goodness. Uh, yeah, I just saw as we were going on air some of the footage of today's uh, press conference, which seems to be an exercise in backpedaling and, and sort of damage control. But I did last night watch the interview with The Sun. It's not just a report. It's, you know, a video, uh, audio tape interview you can listen yeah. to. And it is remarkable. We This is, again, something we haven't seen something like this, where really uh, Trump uh, – basically uh, put Theresa May, the the prime minister uh, in the UK, in a terrible position. He basically said that her approach to Brexit, which she had just announced days before, which had caused uh, big turmoil in her cabinet, led to a couple of resignations. Um, It would uh, cut off any possibility in the future of a trade deal between the US and um, uh, the UK. He said that he had advised her to go a different way in Brexit negotiations. She hadn't listened to him and that it was all going off the rails now. Um, and um, he then even took the really remarkable step of 
saying that Boris Johnson, who had just left her cabinet and who many people think is you know, considering a leadership challenge, try to oust her as prime minister, he made the comment he thought Boris Johnson would make a terrific or a great, I forget what the phrase was, prime minister. Yeah. So that is pretty remarkable to do to uh, your colleague. Especially when you're getting ready to meet with them in the span of about eight hours. Exactly. So, <laughs> and, and look, this is, uh, there are a lot of members of parliament uh, and, and keep in mind, of course, this is a conservative prime minister, which you would yeah. think is, you know, sort of uh, on on the same side of a lot of issues with the conservative president, supposedly. And yet uh, the way that was seen by a lot of people is he's trying to throw sort of moderate mainstream conservative uh, conservatism in the UK under the bus and hope to see someone further to the right, someone like Boris Johnson, yeah. um, you know, take control of the, that party. So um, now he backpedaled it today and said, oh, I, it's, I didn't say anything bad about uh, uh, Prime Minister May. But uh, there, there's a lot of fury in the UK, including uh, amongst um, uh, Tory uh, members of parliament about this. Well, Garrett, uh, seemingly this is going to uh, make it a very interesting uh, next uh, eight to ten months is the fact that uh, obviously the UK is going through this. But President Trump uh, mentioned today that uh, that uh, he believes that the UK and the US will be able to do a bilateral trade deal uh, once the UK goes through with its Brexit. Yes, I mean, I, I think it's you're running out of, of superlatives when you're talking about interesting, remarkable, unprecedented times. And it's, uh, you know, I was quite dismayed to be woken up by the Sun interview even before I had my first cup of coffee, so you can imagine my shock. Uh, I, I, I do want to come back to some of the points about that interview. I mean, it was absolutely remarkable, the, the mix of being thin-skinned, the, the petty attacks, renewing his feud with the mayor of London, and then essentially really interfering in the affairs of, of the United Kingdom. I mean, by sort of condemning the, um, the position, uh, the agreement made last weekend by Theresa May, by essentially endorsing Boris Johnson, uh, by also scolding a lot of European leaders over the questions of, of immigration. He's really interfering in the affairs of one of the closest allies of the United States. So I think it's absolutely remarkable. And he's also one of, the, I think, the most it may not have gotten all the headlines, but his threat to the fact that they might, it might not be possible to, be, to have a bilateral trade agreement between the United States and the United Kingdom if the UK was to go for sort of the soft Brexit option. I mean, that could be very consequential. It might not get the headlines, but I think that is a, a very important part of the interview. Michael, your thoughts? Yeah, let's stipulate that uh, President Trump's uh, behavior in London, as in Brussels, has not been helpful. But let's ask ourselves, uh, given the turmoil in Britain uh, over the Brexit decision, uh, if uh, if we were in a world absent Trump, uh, would British politics uh, be more stable than they are today? And I'm not an expert uh, on this topic, but my instinct is to say that uh, Brexit is realigning uh, politics in Britain in a pretty fundamental way. And uh, even without Trump trying to pour kerosene on the fire, it's not clear to me that uh, it wouldn't uh, still cause a great deal of domestic political churn. Um, And I think that's important to keep in mind because there are a lot of tectonic shifts that are going on in Europe about both economics and politics, I think that would be there even if uh, Hillary Clinton had been uh, elected president in 2016. 
and I think it's important to understand that there are forces that are shifting politics in a way that maybe makes the uh, last 70 years of the period between the end of the Second World War uh, and uh, the recent period something of an anomaly. And going forward, we're going to need a new paradigm for how we understand uh, politics uh, in Western Eurasia. Great having you all with us today. Dan, great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. Michael, great to have you joining us from South Bend. Garrett, thank you for coming on the phone with us today. Thank you. Pleasure being on. My pleasure. Thank you both. Uh, Daniel Kellman from Rutgers University, Garrett Martin from American University, Michael Desch from the University of Notre Dame. We will take a break. When we come back, we look at the uh, rescue from the cave in Thailand of that youth soccer team and their coach, but we look at it from the perspective of all of the incredible leadership that had to occur in order for that to happen. We'll do that in just a minute. Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School.